songs around Easter time. Death was arrested, right? So it's all about the resurrection of Christ, which is obviously uh, why we are all here. So anyways, I love this song. And you know, this week has been crazy. And there are often times that we get lost in, you know, the business of life and all the things. And man, like driving yesterday, today, just seeing all of the blooming things, it just reminds me Kind of like Jeff said, just this time of the year, the season of life, you know, we're still in this crazy times, but, you know, God is here and God is among us, and we just need to constantly remind ourselves of that. So, this song always brings me back to that. So, anyways, this is Death Was Arrested. Alone in my 
my sorrow and dead in my sin. Lost without a hope with no place to begin. Redeemed, only beauty remained. My orphan heart was given a name. My morning grew quiet, my feet rose to death. When death was arrested, my life began.
Amen? Y'all having fun yet? All right. <clears throat> good amen he's right there with us 
need it most. There's no other name but the name that is Jesus. He who was, and still is, and will be through it all. Come what may in the space between all the things unseen and this reckoning. seated. Dear God, thank you so much for being here in this place and that we may worship you with our voice, with our hands, with our emotions, just everything about us, and that we realize and recognize that you are the one who saves us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As you can see by the intro, we're in this series called The Great Interruption, the study of John. But what I want us to do before we begin that is to take some time to pray, because we've been in this 21 days of prayer and fasting. We're one week into it, two weeks to go till Christmas. We'll culminate with that. And today we cycle back in the Lord's Prayer to that, that first phrase, Our Father who art in heaven. It reminds us of God's eminence. He's our Father talking that close relationship we have with him, and the transcendence, that he's in heaven. God is with us, but he's also in heaven. He is beyond anything that we can imagine, yet he is with us. And so what I'm going to ask us to do as we continue in our, 
in uh, this 21 days of prayer and fasting is I want you to, if you feel physically able, to go ahead and kneel with me. And then I would like for maybe three or four of you, before you kneel, let me just kind of tell you what I, wanna, what I want us to do. As I'd like for three or four of you to just lead us in a, a brief prayer, acknowledging this whole idea that we have God with, with us, this closeness with him, our Father, yet he's in heaven to reflect his majesty and his holy uh, character, that he's far more than we could ever imagine. And uh, some of you might be saying, okay, well, someone's going to do that because I never pray in public. But in the 21 days of prayer and fasting, we want God to do something new in each one of our lives. Take us to the edge of discomfort and move us to a new place. Uh, you don't have to be uh, any particular age, any particular person. Just invite you to pray out loud. Make it a brief prayer, acknowledging our gratitude that we have a Father who is in heaven. So if you are physically able and would like to, let's just kneel together. And uh, then three or four of you just lead us in prayer. Lord, thank you for hearing our prayers to be so close that you hear us. Yet because you are in heaven, when you hear us, it makes a difference.
you are God, and we are not, and we acknowledge that and pray that our worship has reflected that, that we are here because we need to be here. We need to experience that relationship that we have with you and to express the unworthy, the unworthiness, the incomprehensible mercy that you have given us, the way that you have redeemed us and you have offered to us, not only in this life, but the one to come, far beyond what we could ever fathom in our minds. Please help us to continue worshiping you by better understanding your word. Lord, you tell us that we express our love to you by being obedient to your word. So teach us now what we need to hear today, we ask in Christ's name. Well, I really think this is this what uh, this series is about is, is is interruptions like that. We come and we're kind of ready to okay, it's time for the message. We know the kind of the drill, what's going to happen here, and God wants to interrupt our lives to reveal Himself to us in new and fresh ways. And today we get to John chapter five, as we come to what we've classified as a great question. That's a great question. A couple of months ago, Larry King passed away. He was known for his impeccable ability to interview any particular person, no matter how well-known or unknown they were. Larry King conducted over 50,000 interviews in the course of his career. And no doubt, he was known as the one who asked great questions, but many times in his interviews, when he would ask a question, someone would respond, as they do so often in interviews, that's a great question. I bet he heard that statement made 50,000 times or more, sometimes in multiple interviews, because so oftentimes when you hear a question asked and you say, that's a great question, basically you're saying, I really don't know how to answer, but that's a better statement than, uh, and you're thinking, what am I going to say? Well, Jesus was a master of questions. He was always asking questions. It's like you were always in school being tested. Every day was pop quiz day with Jesus, and he's going to ask a question here in John chapter 5. But to set up where we are, we have just finished the first year of Jesus' ministry. It's hard to imagine. We're only uh, five chapters into John, but the first year is known as a year of obscurity. A lot of that takes place up in Galilee, and Jesus has now moved from Galilee back down to Jerusalem. And this is where controversy really begins to brew in his life with the religious leaders. And he comes down to Jerusalem. It tells us in the verse, verse of uh, John chapter 5 that it's one of the Jewish festivals. We don't know which one. There were three in which all the Jewish men were required to come to Jerusalem in the course of a year. That was Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And so we don't know exactly which one. Some commentators think it was Passover, others different. But nonetheless, he's there for a festival, so there are a lot of people in Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he makes a little side journey just outside the walls of the temple, and he's going to find a place called the Pool of Bethesda. That means the place of mercy. And there, was a, there were gathered there a number, a great number, it says in verse 3, of disabled people. And when they would come there with a superstitious belief, thinking that it was a religious belief, that when the waters began to move, the first person in would be healed. And we have no indication that that actually happened. It's a lot like Folk, uh, folklore or some wives' tale or something like that, they believed that it was going to happen. The way that that was set up is this pool was fed through a spring that came in intermittently. So it would be a still pond, and all of a sudden the spring would start to come through, and the waters would stir, and everybody would scramble to be the first one in. And the idea was if you could get in first, you would indeed 
be healed. A whole bunch of people were there. They had a colonnade, they had shade, a place where people literally lived waiting for that one moment. And we're going to find that there's an invalid there, a guy who was crippled, could not get around. He'd been that way for 38 years. How long he had been at this pool, we don't know exactly, but he had been a sick guy for a long time. And Jesus comes up to this guy, and he asks him this incredibly great question. Do you want to get well? The guy was probably thinking, what a ridiculous question. 38 years in this condition? Of course I want to get well. But you see, Jesus is probing deeper. We're about to see what John would call the third sign, demonstrating that he really was the Son of God, our Messiah, our Savior, who can change us for all of eternity. We've seen the water turn to wine. We've seen the nobleman's son healed. And now we're about to see this invalid who has been this way for 38 years receive the ability to walk. No other gospel records this particular account. As we come to it, we find that this question that Jesus asked is really a great question for us. I want to say parenthetically in the beginning is that if you have an illness, you have a chronic illness, I want you to listen carefully to what I'm saying because I don't want anybody that is ill or sick or have adversity in their life to say that there is a lack of sympathy or there's some way around that or that should be easily resolved in your life. I'm not saying that. But I don't want us to miss the fact that sometimes we can hide behind the illness or the adversity in our life and it will keep us from getting well. And I think that's why Jesus asked that question, do you want to get well, which seems like an obvious answer. But the reason he was asking it is because it forces, that question forces us to consider how we think of ourselves and how we think of Jesus. Why would Jesus ask that? It could be that this guy was playing the victim. The victim card is played perpetually in our culture today. Why do people do that? Because when you play yourself off as a victim, the expectations of your life are lowered. This guy really had a somewhat comfortable life. I say that very cautiously. But the rich people would come and provide them with resources and food and whatever they needed to take care of them and also to soothe their own conscience about being so well off. And so this guy had basically everything he needed except his health to get around. Have you ever played yourself off as a victim or a martyr? Why do we do that? Because it lowers the expectations of what people require of us. We can gain sympathy. I remember when I tore my Achilles at youth camp playing racquetball, last game I ever played at racquetball, and I was on crutches. And just by fact, by the virtue of being on crutches, expectations of me were lowered of what I was expected to do, of what I was expected to carry, of where I was expected to be. When you have an illness, there is a lowered expectation. Some of you have had COVID. 
When you're sick with that, nobody expects you to get up and clean the house or go to work or be productive. All you're trying to do is get well. Sometimes if we have some adversity in our life, it affords us the opportunity to complain. And that sounds kind of counterintuitive because we think, well, no, we would rather have the adversity out of our lives, but just stop for a moment. Sometimes we kind of like the adversity because it gives us attention. It gives us a reason to complain. I've seen many, many people in bad relationships, and rather than address the problem, they prefer to complain about the problem. It provides us with an excuse not to change. If we pray to God and say, God, I pray that you would rid me of the sin within my life, all sin, show me what it is so that I can confess it and you would cleanse me of it, then what happens? Then we're required to change, and we may not want to change. Perfectionism can work this way. We don't do something because we know we can't do it the way that we would like to, so we just don't do it. Or we finally do it late out of procrastination, and our thought is that we would have done a better job if we had had more time. Again, an excuse. Busyness. When we're real busy, we can say, I would have done that, but I'm so busy. And Jesus says, do you want to get well? Do you want to manage your schedule better so you can focus on real priorities, or do you just want to keep telling everybody you're busy? Because busyness in America makes you feel important. What about the loser's limp? I've done that. Any of you that are athletes, you've done it from time to time. I was a quarterback in high school, and I would throw an interception, and somebody knocked me down, and I'd go back to the sideline, you know, kind of like, that's why it happened. And what, what happens there? You're trying to distract the failure. You're trying to gain sympathy. And sometimes we will walk through life with a loser's limp because it affords us sympathy. It distracts from maybe the deficiencies in our life. And so Jesus is asking a really important question of all of us. Do you want to be well? Do you want to get well spiritually? You see the victimization. What does the guy say? Verse 7. I have no one to help me into the pool. Sure, I want to get well, but nobody will put me in the pool. It's not my fault. I just don't have any help. And Jesus confronts him straight on. And he says, get up. Take your mat and go home. And the text tells us that he was healed instantly. How many of us have prayed in times of illness, times of disease, times of somebody that we loved that had a disease, that it would go away that quickly? Why it doesn't always? Only God knows. But it did for him. And at once, he got up. That question forces us to ask, is Jesus powerful enough to bring change? Do you want to get well, Jesus asked. In your marriage, in your job, in your addictions, in relationships? Do you want to get well? And sometimes we'll come up with an excuse, but if you work for him or if you are married to her, 
And we forget that nothing is impossible with Jesus when we fully surrender to him. Do you want to get well? Maybe you've tried hard. Maybe you've done a lot of things. But if we want to really get well, no matter what it is, Jesus is the only one that can make the difference. And then things really began to get strange. The guy walks off with his mat, and he's stopped by some religious leaders. You would call them the religious police. Blow the whistle, hold up the hand. Why are you carrying your mat on the Sabbath? They had 39 different categories, not rules, but 39 different categories of things you could not do on the Sabbath. They weren't from God. They were, these were man-made traditions in which they were trying to show to God how good they were. That's the sad thing. They weren't even trying to earn God's favor. They were just trying to reveal to God how good they were, that they really didn't need him to save them from our, their sins. One of the rules was you can't drag a stick on the Sabbath. Let's just say a kid's walking along with his parents, picks up a stick, starts dragging it, the parents start screaming. Why? Because if you're dragging a stick on the Sabbath, it means you're plowing like some kid is really going to plant something there. Another one was, and it just points to, to how far back vanity goes. Women, I'm not sure why it was just women and not men, but women were not allowed to look into a mirror on the Sabbath because they might spot a gray hair and pluck it out, and that would be work. And then there was the great dilemma of what would happen if a man put a saddle on his donkey right before the Sabbath, and then the Sabbath occurred before he got on the horse or the donkey to start riding, what would he do? If he took the saddle off on the Sabbath, he would be working. If he left the saddle on the donkey, the donkey would be working by holding the saddle up. Don't you wish we could debate such things like that today? And that's where they were. And so they're mad at this guy for carrying his mat, and then he's pretty concerned. Number one, he's not been able to go to the temple because he's disabled. You're not permitted in there. And so he's carrying his mat, but he knows what the rule is. And the rule is anybody working on the Sabbath that is caught gets killed. So we see in the text that he quickly says, it was that man who healed me. He was the one who told me to carry the mat. Blame it on him. And who is this guy? And interesting enough, we find that, that this guy doesn't even know who Jesus is. But they connect in the temple. Give this guy credit. He is going to the temple for the first time in at least 38 years. Couldn't go before. Why is he going there? Probably because something miraculous had happened in his life. And Jesus intersects with him at the temple. And this is where he finds out who Jesus is. And he says to this guy, see, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Why is that question so important? We're worse off than we think. You see, if you're physically sick, I've been there, you know, you're, you're just, you're really feeling bad. Typically, you just think, I just want to die. You know, I feel so bad. All I want to do is get well. Understand that, know that. But you know, when Jesus approaches this guy, he says, I know that you were sick 
for 38 years. But there's something far worse than physical infirmity. He was physically ill, but he probably hadn't given much thought to spiritual matters, except probably being disappointed or disillusioned with God. And Jesus was saying to him, you were a physical invalid, but you need to understand, you're terminally ill spiritually. That's why he says, stop sinning or something worse may happen. You may now focus on spiritual matters, which are far more important than the physical matters. And the religious leaders were no better. They were fixated on those little things that they could manipulate in this world. They thought that salvation came through the study of scriptures. They were not Though they say they were looking for the Messiah, they really weren't because they thought they were good enough. By reading the scriptures, that was enough to give them salvation. They were like starving men studying a cookbook. They were so far off. So they confronted Jesus about all of this, and Jesus responds to them in a way that just blows their mind because he equates himself with God. So here's a question, though, for them. Did they realize they were sick? See, the one man knew that he needed to get well. He just didn't realize that it was more than physical. The religious leaders didn't even realize how sick they were spiritually. And that's where I think it comes home to us. 21 days of prayer and fasting. Are we sick? Do we need healing spiritually? On a casual look, we might say, I think we're pretty good. But could it be that God wants to probe deeper in? dark spot to make us more into the and she was just destroying him and he could look up and she was up the path going up the hill way ahead of him she was crushing it but it wouldn't be until later that they realized that she actually had cancer at the time she seemed healthy from all externals but inside something was very wrong See, we can look very good on the outside, maybe even crushing it in life, but something isn't right on the inside. And so Jesus is posing this question, not just to this, this man that had been sick so long, but to the religious leaders as well as to us. Do you want to get well? We're worse off than we think. Jesus goes on to explain that further down here. He says, very truly, I tell you in verse 24, whoever hears my word and believes him and believes the one who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Continuing on in verse 28, he says, don't be amazed at what you see. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice. They will come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. John will use that phraseology throughout his book, and it might sound like that you're saved by works. If you do good things, then you'll rise to eternal life. But what he's saying there, the good works are this, is that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. That's good. And if you don't believe in Jesus, that's evil. It's that simple. You're good if you believe in Christ. You're lost if you don't. Things are worse than we think. And in America, we struggle with that. 
Anne Graham Lotz talks about going to third world countries and recognizing in the people there, they see their desperate need for God. Not just in their physical needs, but spiritually, they recognize. Many times we can be so comfortable and content and self-sufficient that we don't see our desperate need for God. And that was the problem here. I was in Arlington National Cemetery this last Thursday with my son. And as we were walking through and seeing those 400,000 grave markers, it was sobering to be reminded of all of the people that have passed before us. Their one and only life, like mine, like yours, is over and gone. It's not uncommon to be in Arlington Cemetery and to hear taps in the background because they have around 30 funerals every single day. And when taps is played, no one ever comes back to life. And as Kent Hughes talks about in his commentary, even if the best of buglers was placed in the best of spots in the middle of that cemetery and played revelry to the very best of his ability, not a single soldier would rise from the grave. But Jesus says here, a time is coming when everyone will hear his voice. Those who have rejected him, those who have embraced him, everyone will hear his voice. And they will rise to an eternity with him or without him, forever being separated. And so what Jesus is saying is we are worse off than we might imagine. And that's not bad news, that's good news. Because once we understand that, we can embrace the best news, that Jesus Christ can make us right with God. On that day, every single corpse in every single cemetery will rise in obedience to God. Do you want to get well? It's a personal question for all of us. Let's not get lost in the background and the story here. Do you want to get well? Is there something in your life that needs to be healed? Give it to God. Because it says in John chapter 5, verse 17, this chapter, my father is always at work to this very day and I too am working. God's at work now. He's as much at work today as he was on that day when he healed that man. He can heal your marriage. He can heal that deficiency in your life. He can heal you from that temptation. He can heal the situations that are holding you back. He can heal you of your anger, of your selfishness. He can heal you. The question is, do you want to get well? Or do you want to use that as a continuing crutch to excuse certain behaviors in your life? And then the other is, do you want others to get well? I can't help but look back in the story and see those religious leaders holding up their stop sign, making this guy stop, and say, why are you carrying your mat? And the guy says, well, the reason I'm carrying my mat is because this guy healed me, and I'm no longer an invalid, and I've been that way for 38 years. And they say, that's beside the point. It's the Sabbath. We don't care that you're better. We care that you're breaking the law. Now, none of us are that harsh. At least I don't really see anybody here, maybe somebody online, but I don't see anybody in here that would be, would be that harsh. But when we don't share how people can be healed through Christ, we're in the same fraternity the same sorority. 
because we really don't care that people get better. Do you want others to get well? Do you know of a friend that's just hopeless, that's struggling? Have you shared? Have you prayed with them? Have you demonstrated concern and compassion? So Jesus has commanded all of us to do. While in the tomb of the, uh, while, while in Arlington Cemetery, we went to the tomb of the unknown. And we had the privilege of watching the changing of the guards. Fascinating if you've never done that. To see the dignity that we provide for those who have died. And as the guards would make their exchange on that mat, the guard that had been on duty says, post and orders remain as directed. And the one receiving the new duty, getting ready to come on, says, orders accepted. Meaning, the one saying, nothing has changed. We're to continue just as we've been told. And the one receiving says, I agree. I will continue as we've been ordered. God's orders to us are to share the gospel of Christ with everybody. Those haven't changed. They haven't changed with cult cultural norms or values or technology or anything else. It's the same. And if we're holding that back from other people, we might as well say, I don't care if you get well. So let's do that. Let me ask anybody here, have you never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? You will never get well without him. God loves you, just as demonstrated in this story, and he has created you to have a relationship with him. But the problem for us is the same as it was for that man. He thought his illness was his biggest problem, but his sin was his biggest problem. Our sin separates us from holy God. And only Jesus Christ can make us right with God, but he can make us right for now and for all of eternity. And it starts by humbly repenting of our sins. And saying, Lord, I confess I'm a sinner in desperate need of your forgiveness. And I'm going to lead us in a prayer in just a moment. And as I do, I want those of us who are not yet Christians to really think about crossing the line and praying to receive Christ today. That's your greatest need. Greater than any need that you have in your life. And then for all Christians, what I want you to think about is when is the last time I shared that with someone that doesn't know Christ. When's the last time I was saying, would you pray a prayer like this? When was the last time we did that with someone else? If it's been a long time, that's disconcerting. So let's ask God to do something new in our lives as we pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way that you demonstrated your love for us. We look at this slice of history and we see that you, with you, there's nothing that's impossible that you were able. You have authority over creation itself, over physical bodies, over illness, over ailments. And you just speak the word and it happens. Yet even in all of that manifestation of power, you remind us that there is a greater need in everyone's life. That is to have our sin removed from us and forgiven. And only you can do that. I pray if anyone listening in this room or online has never received Christ, that they would voice a prayer similar to this, recognizing it's not a magical prayer. It's just a prayer of a sincere heart trusting in you, saying, Lord Jesus, 
I recognize that I am a sinner in desperate need of your forgiveness. Please forgive me of all my sins and become the Lord and Savior of my life. I surrender to you all that I am and all that I have, and I will follow hard after you the remaining days of my one and only life. Well, for those of us who have already trusted in you to be our Lord and Savior, may we ask, is there something inside of me that needs to be healed? Lord Jesus, do I want you to heal me? Lord, I pray that our hearts would be so receptive to anything you might want to do that we would confess every sin that we are aware of and invite your spirit to show us even more, knowing that spiritual awakening is always birthed in repentance of our sin. And God, for some of us, we recognize that maybe the sin that we've committed most is the holding back of sharing your good news with other people, that we would repent of that. So God, we know that you are here. We know that you are working among us. We simply pray now that we would not be an obstacle to what you might want to do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Love you all. Thanks for listening. I'm going to be standing over at the cross and in just a moment if you would uh, like someone to pray with you over anything going on in your life. And know that after the service will be in the atrium. If you want to receive Christ, better understand what that means. Join the church. Be baptized. Rededicate your life. Let's figure out a way to move in the direction God wants us to as we stand together, as we worship in conclusion of this service. Peace for my chains, I'm a prisoner no more. was a ransom Yeah.
Thank you so much for worshiping with us today. Y'all are dismissed.